0: Chapter Two of Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark DeSanzo. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy by Ruth Putnam. Chapter Two Youth, Fourteen Forty to Fourteen Fifty Three the heir of burgundy was still in very tender years when he began to take official part in public affairs sometimes associated with one parent sometimes with the other there was a practical advantage in bringing the boy to the fore by which the duke was glad to profit with his own manifold interests it was impossible for him to be present in his various capitals as often as was demanded by the usage of the diverse individual seigneuries It was politic, therefore, to magnify the representative capacity of his son and of his consort in order to obtain the grants and ed which certain of his subjects declared could be given only when requested orally by their sovereign lord. Thus, in 1444, it was Count Charles and the Duchess who appeared in Holland to ask an ed. In the following year, Charles accompanied his father, when Philip made one of his rare visits, there were only three between 1428 and 1466 to holland and zealand olivier de la marche was among the attendants on this occasion and he describes with great detail how rejoiced were the inhabitants to have their absentee count in their land many matters could only be set aright by his authority among the complaints brought to him at middleburg were accusations against a certain knight of high birth Jeanne de d'ambourg philip ordered that the man be arrested at once and brought before him for trial this was easier said than done warned of his danger Dombork with four or five comrades took refuge in the clock tower of the church of the Cordeliers, a sanctuary that could not be taken by storm he was provided with a good store of food this audacious criminal and prepared to stand a siege there he remained three days because for the honor of the church they could not fire upon him Quote, and i remember adds Lamarche, seeing a nun come out and call to jeanne d'homborque her brother advising him to perish defending himself rather than to dishonor their lineage by falling into the hands of the executioner nevertheless finally he was forced to surrender to his prince and he was beheaded in the market-place at middleburg but at the plea of his sister the said nun his body was delivered to her to be buried in consecrated ground in this same visit philip presided over the zealand estates and the young count sat by his side not as an idle spectator but because usage required the presence of the heir as well as that of the count of zealand when charles was twelve he was present at the assembly of the order of the golden fleece held in ghent it was the first occasion of the kind witnessed by la Marche, and very minute is his description of the lavish magnificence of the affair undoubtedly intended to awe the citizens into complying with the requests of their count of flanders charles played a prominent part in all the functions and assisted in the election of his tutor seigneur hibert d'oxy another candidate of that year was frank van Borselen, count of ostervant widower of jacqueline late countess of holland In 1446, the little Countess of Charolais died at Brussels, honorably as befitted a king's daughter. Was she buried at Saint-Gudule? Tireless in their devotion were the Duke and Duchess in her last illness, and Charles the Seventh dispatched two skilled doctors to her aid. But all efforts were vain. Much bemourned was the princess, for she was virtuous. God have pity on her soul. Piously ejaculates Lamarche. A little item in the accounts suggests that a pleasant friendship had existed between the two young people. To Jehan de Lacour, Harper of Madame the Countess of Charolais, for a harp which she had bought from him and given to Monsieur the Count of Charolais for him to play and take his amusement, twelve francs. It is easy to surmise that music was not, however, the young count's favorite amusement in Philip's court tournaments were still held, and afforded a fascinating entertainment for a lad whose bent was undoubtedly towards a military career. One valiant actor in these tourneys, where were revived the ancient traditions of knighthood, was Jacques de la a chevalier with all the characteristics of times past, fighting for fame in the present. In his youth this aspirant for reputation swore a vow to meet thirty knights in combat before he attained his thirtieth year dominated by a desire to fulfil his vow le lang haunted the court of burgundy because the netherlands were on the high road between england and many points in germany italy and the east and there he had the best chance of falling in with all the prowess that might be abroad for stay-at-home prowess he cared not a delightful personage is Monsieur jacques and a brave role does he play in the series of jousts sporting gaily on the pages of various burgundian chroniclers who recorded in their old age what they had seen in their youth one description however of these encounters reads much like another and they need not be repeated during his childhood charles was a spectator only on the days of mimic battle in his seventeenth year he was permitted to enter the lists as a regular combatant a permission shared by his fellow pupils all eager to flesh their maiden spears the Duke arranged that his son should have a preliminary tilt a few days before the public affair in order to test his ability. All the courtiers, and apparently ladies were not excluded from the discussion on the matter, agreed that no better knight could be found for this purpose than Jacques de la who, on his part, was highly honored by being selected to gauge the untried capabilities of the Prince. In the park at Brussels with the Duke and Duchess as onlookers, the preliminary encounter took place. At the very first attack, Charles struck Monsieur Jacques on the shield and shattered his lance into many pieces. The Duke was displeased because he thought that the knight had not exerted his full strength and was favoring his son. He accordingly sent word to Jacques that he must play in earnest and not hold his force in leash. Fresh lances were brought. Again did the Count withstand the attack so sturdily that both lances were shattered. This time the boy's mother was the dissatisfied one— Thinking that the knight was too hard with his junior, but the duke only laughed. Quote, Thus differed the parents. The one desired him to prove his manhood, the other was preoccupied with his safety. With these two courses, the trial ended amid rounds of applause for the prince. End quote. The actual tourney was held on the market place in Brussels before a distinguished assembly. Count Charles was escorted into the arena by his cousin, the Count d'Estampes, and other nobles. Seigneur d'Auxy, his tutor, stood near to watch the maiden efforts of the prince and his mates. He had reason to be proud of Charles, both for his bearing and his skill. He gave and received excellent thrusts, broke more than ten lances, and did his duty so valiantly that in the evening he received the prize from two princesses, and Montjoie was cried by the heralds in his honor. From that time forth the count was considered a puissant and rude jouster, and gained great renown. Quote, and that is the reason why I commence my memoirs about him and his deeds, continues Lamarche on concluding his description of the tournament, and I do not speak from hearsay and rumour. As one who has been brought up with him from his youth in his father's service and in his own, I will touch upon his education, his morals, his character, and his habits from the moment when I first saw him as appears above in my memoirs. As to his character, I will commence at the worst features. He was hot, active and impetuous as a child he was very eager to have his own way nevertheless he had so much understanding and good sense that he resisted his inclinations and in his youth no one could be found sweeter or more courteous than he he did not take the name of god or the saints in vain and held god in great fear and reverence he learned well and had a retentive memory he was fond of reading and of hearing read the stories of lancelot and gawain but to both he preferred the sea and boats. Falconry, too, he loved, and he hunted whenever he had leave. In archery he early excelled his comrades and was good at other sports. Thus was the Count educated, trained, and taught, and thus did he devote himself to good and excellent exercise. Quote. That the report of the lavishness and extravagance of the Burgundian court was no idle rumor, exaggerated by frequent repetitions, is attested to by every bit of contemporary evidence enthusiastic and loyal chroniclers dwell on the magnificence and the arid details of bills paid show what it costs to attain the vaunted perfection while the protests from taxpayers prove that this splendor did not grow like the lilies of the field philip's treasury had many separate compartments there were many quarters to which he could turn for his needed supplies, but there were times when his exchequer ran very threateningly low, and his financial stress led him to be very conciliatory towards the burghers with full purses. In 1445 Ghent had been honored by the celebration of the Feast of the Order of the Golden Fleece within her gates. Two years later Philip appeared in person at a meeting of the Colasse, or Municipal Assembly, and delivered a harangue to the Gentish magistrates and burghers, flattering them, moreover, by using their vernacular. The tenor of this speech was as follows My good and faithful friends, you know how I have been brought up among you from my infancy. That is why I have always loved you more than the inhabitants of all my other cities, and I have proved this by acceding to all your requests. I believe then that I am justified in hoping that you will not abandon me today when I have need of your support. Doubtless you were not ignorant of the condition of my father's treasury at the period of his death. The majority of his possessions had been sold. His jewels were in pawn. Nevertheless, the demands of a legitimate vengeance compelled me to undertake a long and bloody war, during which the defense of my fortresses and of my cities and the pay of my army have necessitated outlays so large that it is impossible to estimate them. You know, too, that at the very moment when the war on France was at its height, I was obliged, in order to assure the protection of my country of Flanders, to take arms against the English in Hainaut, in Zealand, and in Friesland, a proceeding costing me more than ten thousand d'or, which I raised with difficulty. Was I not equally obliged to proceed against Liege in behalf of my countship of Nemours, which sprang from the bosom of Flanders? it is not necessary to add to all these outlays those which i assume daily for the cause of the christians in jerusalem and the maintenance of the holy sepulchre it is true however that yielding to the persuasions of the pope and the council i have now consented to put an end to the evils multiplied by war by forgetting my father's death and by reconciling myself with the king since the conclusion of this treaty i considered that while i had succeeded in preserving to my subjects during the war the advantages of industry and of peace they had submitted to heavy burdens in taxes and involuntary contributions and that it was my duty to re-establish order and justice in the administration but everything went on as though the war had not ceased all my frontiers have been menaced and i found myself obliged to make good my rights in luxembourg so useful to the defence of my other lands especially of brabant and flanders in this way my expenses continued to increase all my resources are now exhausted and the saddest part of it all is that the good cities and communes of flanders and especially the country folk are at the very end of their sacrifices With grief I see many of my subjects unable to pay their taxes and obliged to emigrate. Nevertheless, my receipts are so scanty that I have little advantage from them, nor do I reap more from my hereditary lands, for they all are equally impoverished. A way must be found to ease the poor people, and at the same time to protect Flanders from insult, Flanders for whose sake I would risk my own person, although to arrive at this end important measures have become imperative. After this affectionate preamble, Philip finally states that, in order to raise the requisite revenues, no method seemed to him so good and so simple as a tax on salt, three sous on every measure for a term of twelve years. He promised to dispense with all other subsidies and to make his son swear to demand nothing further as long as the gabelle was imposed. No, he added in conclusion, that even if you consent to it I will renounce it if others prove of a different opinion, for I do not desire that the communes of Flanders be more heavily weighted than any other portion of my territory." Quote. The Duke might have spared his trouble and his elaborate condescension. The answer to his conciliatory request was a flat refusal to consider the matter at all. Salt was a vital necessity to Flemish fisheries, and its cost could not be increased to the least degree without serious inconvenience. The Flemings were wroth at his imitating the worst custom of his French kinsmen. Philip departed from Ghent in great dudgeon. After a time he was persuaded that the indisposition of the town to meet his reasonable wishes was not due to the citizens at large, but to the machinations of a few unruly agitators among the magistrates. In 1449, therefore, he took a high-handed course of trying to direct the issue of the regular municipal elections, so as to ensure the choice of magistrates on whose obedience he could rely. The appearance of Burgundian troops in Ghent, before the election of mid-August, aroused the wrath of the community who thought that their most cherished franchises were in jeopardy. This was the beginning of a bitter struggle between Ghent and Philip. The duke found it no light matter to coerce the independent burghers into remembering that they were simply part of the Burgundian state. Tant erat liberam gentem in servitutem ad ejaculates Meyer in the midst of his chronicle of the details of fourteen months of active hostilities. Matters were long in coming to an outbreak. Various points had been contended over when Philip had endeavored to change the seat of the great council or to take diverse measures tending to concentrate certain judicial or legislative functions for his own convenience, but in a manner prejudicial to the autonomy of Ghent. His centripetal policy was disliked, but when his policy went further, and he attempted to control purely civic offices, dislike grew into resentment and the Genters rose in open revolt. For a time their opposition passed in Philip's estimation as mere insignificant unruliness, By 1452, however, the date of the tourney above described, it became evident that a vital issue was at stake. The estates of Flanders endeavored to mediate between Overlord and Town, but without success. Owing to Philip's interference in the elections, the results were declared void, and when a new election was appointed, the Burgundians accused the city of hastily augmenting its number of legal voters by over-facile naturalization laws the guilds too evinced a readiness to be very lenient in their scrutiny of candidates for admission to their cherished privileges preferring for the nonce numbers to quality occupancy of furnished rooms was declared sufficient for enfranchisement and there were cases where mere guests of a bourgeois were hastily recorded on the lists as full-fledged citizens by these means the popular party waxed very strong numerically the sheriffs found themselves quite unequal to holding the rampant spirit of democracy in check the regular government was overthrown and the demagogues succeeded in electing three captains huftmans invested with arbitrary power for the time being the decrees of the ex-sheriffs were suspended and a mass of very radical measures promulgated and joyfully confirmed by the populace assembled on the friday market it was to be the judgment of the town meeting that ruled not deputed authority One ordinance stipulated that at the sound of the bell every burgher must hasten to the marketplace to lend his voice to the deliberations. For a time various negotiations went on between Philip and envoys from Ghent. The latter took a high hand and insinuated in unmistakable terms that if the Duke refused an accommodation with them, they would appeal to their suzerain, the King of France. No act of rebellion, overt or covert, exasperated Philip more than this suggestion charles the seventh was only too ready to ignore those clauses in the treaty of arras releasing the duke from homage and virtually acknowledging his complete independence in his french territories the king accepted missives from his late vassal city without reprimanding the writers for their presumption in signing themselves seigneurs of ghent his action however was confined to mild attempts at mediation it was plain to the duke that his other towns would follow ghent's resistance to his authority if there were hopes of her success therefore he threw aside all other interests for the time being and exerted himself to levy a body of troops to crush flemish pretensions his counsellors advised him to sound the temper of other citizens and to ascertain whether their sympathies were with ghent answers of feeble loyalty came back to him from the majority of the other towns undoubtedly they highly approved against efforts they too could not afford to pay taxes fraught with danger to their commerce nor to relinquish one jot of privileges dearly bought at successive crises throughout a long period of years the only doubt in their minds was as to the ultimate success of the burghers to stem the course of burgundian usurpation therefore they first hedged and then consented to aid the duke This course was pursued by the Hollanders and the Zealanders, all alike short-sighted. The Genters succeeded in possessing themselves of the castle of Pook by force, and of the village of Gavarin by stratagem, taking advantage in the latter case of the Castellan's absence at church. When every part of his dominions had been canvassed for troops, and Philip was prepared for his first active campaign against Ghent, he was anxious to leave his heir under the protection of the Duchess, conscious that the imminent contest would be bitter and deadly. A pretense was made that the young Count's accoutrements were not ready, and that, therefore, he would have to remain in Brussels. But he whose ambitions waxed hastened the completion of his accoutrements, and swore by St. George the greatest oath he ever used, that he would rather go in his shirt than not accompany his father to punish his impudent rebel subjects." The approaching hostilities were watched by foreign merchants in dread of commercial disaster. Quote, On May eighteenth, the nations of the merchants of Bruges departed thence to go to Ghent to try to make peace between that city and the Duke of Burgundy, and there were nations of Spain, Aragon, Portugal, and Scotland, besides the Venetians, Milanese, Genoese, and Lucans. End quote. But the men of Ghent were beyond the point where commercial arguments could stem their course. The very day that this company arrived in the city, the burghers sallied forth six or seven thousand strong, fully equipped for offensive warfare. Both the actual engagements and the guerrilla skirmishes that raged over a minute stretch of territory were characterized by an extraordinary ferocity. Around Oudenard, which town Philip was determined to relieve, men were beheaded like sheep. In the first regular engagement in which Charles took part, he showed a brave front and learned the duties of a prince by rewarding others with the honor of knighthood. Among those slain in the course of the war were Cornelius, bastard of Burgundy, and the gallant Jacques de La Lange. Philip grieved deeply over the death of the former, his favorite among his natural sons, and buried him with all honors in the church of St. Gudule in Brussels. The title by which he was known, hardly a proud one it would seem, passed to his brother Anthony. Lelang, too was greatly mourned thus prematurely cut down in his thirty-third year there was so much fear lest the duke's so legitimate heir might also perish in these conflicts where there was no mercy that charles was persuaded to go to visit his mother in the hope that she would keep him by her side She made a feast in his honor, but, to the surprise of all, the Duchess, who had wished to protect her son from the mild perils of attorney, now encouraged him with brave words to return to fight in all earnest for his inheritance. He himself was very indignant at the efforts to treat him as a child. The first truce and negotiations for peace, initiated in the summer of 1452, were broken off because the conditions were unbearable to the Genters. Another year of warfare followed before the decisive Battle of Gavarin in July 1453 forced them sadly to succumb. There was no other course open to them. Not only were they defeated, but their numbers were decimated. With full allowance for exaggeration, it is certain that the loss was very heavy. Terms scornfully rejected at the earlier date were, in 1453, accepted with every humiliating detail. More, the defeated rebels were bidden to be grateful that their kind sovereign had imposed nothing further to the conditions. As to abating the severity of the articles, he declared that he would not change an a for a bay. The chief provisions were as follows. The deans of the guilds were deprived of participation in the election of sheriffs. The privileges of the naturalization laws were considerably abridged no sentence of banishment could be pronounced without the intervention of the duke's bailiff whose authorization too was required before the publication of edicts ordinances etc the sheriffs were forbidden to place their names at the head of letters to the officers of the duke the banners were to be delivered to the duke and placed under five locks whose several keys should be deposited with as many different people without whose consensus the banners could not be brought forth to lead the burghers to sedition one gate was to be closed every thursday in memory of the day when the citizens had marched through it to attack their liege lord and another was to be barred up in perpetuity or at the pleasure of their sovereign to reimburse the duke for his enforced outlay a heavy indemnity was to be paid by the city july thirtieth was the date appointed for the final act of submission the amende honorable of the unfortunate city the scene was very similar to that played at bruges in 1440 two thousand citizens headed by the sheriffs councillors and captains of the burgher guard met the duke and his suite a league without the walls of ghent bareheaded barefooted and divested of all their robes of office and of dignity clad only in shirts and small clothes these magistrates confessed that they had wronged their loving lord by unruly rebellion and begged his pardon most humbly the duke spent the night of july twenty ninth at gavron prepared to march out in the morning with his whole army in handsome array. Philip was magnificently apparelled, but he rode the same horse which he had used on the day of battle, with the various wounds received on that day ostentatiously plastered over to make a dramatic show of what the injured sovereign had suffered at the hands of his disloyal subjects. The civic procession was headed by the abbot of St. Bavon and the prior of the Carthusians. The burghers who followed the half-clad officials were fully dressed, but they too were barefoot and ungirdled. All prostrated themselves in the dust, and cried, Mercy on the town of Ghent. While they were thus prostrate, the town spokesman of the council made an elaborate speech in French, assuring the Duke that if, out of his benign grace, he would take his loving and repentant subjects again into his favor, they would never again give him cause for reproach. Quote, at the conclusion of this harangue, the Duke and the Count of Charolais, there present, pardoned the petitioners for their evil deeds. The men of Ghent re-entered their town more happy and rejoiced than can be expressed, and the Duke departed for Lille, having disbanded his army, that every one might return to their several homes. The joy experienced by the conquered, here described by La Marche, as he looked back at the event from the calm retirement of his old age, was not visible to all eye witnesses. The progress of this war was watched eagerly from other parts of Philip's dominion. His army was full of men from both the Burgundies, who sent frequent reports to their own homes. Some passages from one of these reports by an unknown war correspondent run as follows. Quote, as to news from here, Monday after St. Magdalene's Day, Monsieur the Duke got the better of the Genters near Gavarin between ten and eleven o'clock they attacked him near his quarters. The Duke risked his own person in advance of his company and the very worst of the slaughter, which lasted from the said place up to Ghent, a distance of about two leagues. The slain number three or four thousand, more or less, and those drowned in the river of Co about two hundred. This Tuesday, the date of writing, the army departs from their quarters to advance on Ghent to demand the conditions lately offered them, and the bearer of this letter will tell you what is the result. Monsieur the Duke and his army marched up to Ghent and I have seen the bearing of the citizens. They are very bitter and despondent. Monsieur the Marshal has been parleying. I hear that matters have been settled. I hear that the Genters' loss is 13 to 14,000 men. I cannot write more for I have no time owing to the haste of the messenger." End quote. This was written July 23rd. There is another dispatch of July 31st giving the last news which was, quote unquote, very joyous. The public apology had just been enacted, quote, and afterwards, in token of being conquered and as a confession that my said seigneur was victorious, those of Ghent have delivered up all their banners to the number of eighty, and on this day my said lord has created seven or eight knights and heralds in honour of his triumph, which is inestimable, end quote the duke's victory was certainly inestimable in its value to him yet in spite of the rigour enforced on this defeated people they were not as crushed as they might have been had they submitted in fourteen forty five philip was clever enough to be more lenient than appeared at first ancient privileges were confirmed in a special compact and the duke swore to maintain all former concessions in their entirety except in the points above specified Liberty of person was guaranteed, and it was expressly stipulated that if the bailiff refused to sustain the sheriffs in their exercise of justice, or tried to arrogate to himself more than his due authority, he should forfeit his office. Lastly, and more important than all, the Duke made no attempt to revive the demand for the Gabelle. Salt was left free and untaxed. As a matter of fact, too, the Duke was not exigeant in the fulfillment of every item of the treaty, and two years later he increased certain privileges. He had cut the lion's claws, but he had no desire to pit his strength again with Flemish communes. He had taught the audacious rebels a lesson, and that sufficed him. End of chapter 2